All right. And we are live. I think people are trickling in. Um, I'll go ahead and get us started uh, as we have an exciting afternoon ahead of us. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to our second afternoon session. Uh, my name is Darren. I'm a graduate student in religious ethics over at Princeton University, and I'm hosting these early afternoon sessions. Um, if you're just joining us, we've been learning and thinking about religious communities, race and justice with um, Professor Borja and some previous panelists in the morning. Um, this present session will be a roundtable format, and I'm happy to reintroduce um, Professor Melissa Borja, who will be moderating this conversation, as well as our two other guests, Reverend Sung-Yeon Chonmoro and Dr. Lucas Kwong. Uh, professor Borja is an assistant professor of American culture at University of Michigan, where she is a faculty member in the Asian Pacific Islander um, American Studies program. Professor Borja's work centers on the United States and the Pacific world with special attention to how religious beliefs and practices have developed in the context of the modern American state. Dr. Borja is also an avid public scholar. She is a senior advisor to Princeton University's Religion and Forced Migration Initiative and an affiliated researcher with the Stop AAPI Hate Reporting Center. Thank you for being with us uh, here today and uh, hosting this conversation. I'm also pleased to introduce uh, Reverend Sung-Yong Choi Morrow and Professor Lucas Kwong. Reverend Choi Morrow is the Executive Director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, which gathers community leaders to address a wide variety of policy issues such as immigrant rights, economic justice, and reproductive and health rights. Before working at the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, Reverend Choi Morrow was the Director of Organizing at Interfaith Worker Justice, collaborating with community organizations, unions, and faith groups on worker organizing and public policy issues. Reverend Choi Morrow is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, and she is also a board member of the HANA Center, a Chicago-based organization that builds power with Korean Americans, immigrants, and multiracial communities for just policies that impact immigrant families. She brings to the conversation just a wealth of community organizing experience to share with us today, and I'm excited to introduce her. Um, professor Lucas Kwong is a writer, musician, and assistant professor of English at New York City College of Technology. Professor Kwong publishes in public venues like Public Goods, Red Letter Christians, and the Institute of Christian Socialism's Bias Mag Magazine, and scholarly journals like Victorian Literature and Culture and Journal of Narrative Theory. He is also an assistant editor for New American Notes Online and has recently published on Christian nationalism's relationship to anti-Asian hate and authored the Against Christian Xenophobia Project. Uh, we're happy to have Professor Kwong here today. Uh, just a reminder, as our panelists are chatting, if you have any questions, please use the Q&A tab and um, you can upvote questions that you like. Um, and we'll talk about them in the latter half of the conversation. Uh, Professor Borja, I'll go ahead and pass the virtual microphone over to you to get our conversation started. Thank you for joining us today. First of all, it is such a blessing to be able to have this conversation with both of you today. I got up this morning and I thought, oh my goodness, I get to have a conversation with Sanyan and Lucas. It's going to be a great day. So I'm so thankful that you're here to share your, your wisdom. Um, we'll have, we have about a half hour. I thought we would chat among the three of us and then for the second half hour, open it up for 
questions from the audience. Um, and before we talk about all of these big issues, race, religion, justice, organizing, I think it's helpful for people to get a sense of your particular stories. And so I guess my first question is, tell us about how you got involved with justice work. What is the origins of your political consciousness? What inspired you? You can answer that question however you like. And maybe, Sonia, you can go first. Sure, thank you. Um, so I am uh, MK, a missionary kid. I grew up in India for, for the most part. And then came to the United States to go to college. So I went to attend a Wheaton College. I see some of my fellow Wheaton alums um, here in the space. And so, um, so a lot of my formation um, about how I understand evangelicalism and, and, and theology was formed living in a very diverse interfaith setting where Christian culture and identity was not the majority. And so I think when I came to the United States, that was very shocking to me that um, Christianity and our theology wasn't really defined as, uh, you know, like it was much more of a mainstream culture versus like it being something we had to live out because, you know, like, I mean, literally I grew up where Christmas was just a regular day. Like it's just very different. Right. And so I think for me, that's what shaped my, my, my uh, political consciousness as I came to the United States and realized that being a Christian is actually a privilege. And there was a lot of things about the way we made assumptions about how we move um, in, in, in this country and space that just was like really weird to me. And in fact, like theologically very dissonant to me. And I think, especially, you know, being in context like Wheaton College, which is like, when I went there, it was like 95% white, like, and very, you know, very, very conservative in terms of most people, you know, went to Christian private schools. Like there was, you know, and like, I would share stories of like my Muslim friends and they're like, you know, a Muslim, you know, it was just like very weird. And, and then 9-11 happened while I was there. Right. And I think that really solidified my need to start speaking up because I was like, you know, I heard comments like, well, if we just got rid of all the Arabs, like we wouldn't have these problems, like from Christians. Right. And I just, I was just like, how, how are we, you know, saying, you know, we're, we're living out like, you know, our, our motto is like for Christ and his kingdom and yet saying these things. And I'm just, it was very, it was very, um, it was very contradictory. And I think I started speaking up more and really talking about the need to also focus on justice issues here. Cause there were so many people who wanted to go be missionaries elsewhere. And I'm like, what about, what about justice here? Like, what about the things that white supremacy and white culture has perpetuated that's hurt people of color in this country. And I think that was really the start of my journey. And I had some really awesome professors and friends um, um, that I was able to journey with in at Wheaton College that really helped me find my voice and to say, you know, my faith is, you know, instructing me and inspiring me to live out in a way that's not what the mainline messaging is. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are those of us who were very close and we survived it together, right? And have gone on to do really, um, you know, work that's really trying to integrate and really um, be in the space of living out our faith authentically in a culture where that's not the norm or the preferred way of understanding our theology. There's so much to unpack there. Um, I love your attention to the trans-Pacific context, which is something we've referenced in other 
conversations, but your distinctive experience of being a missionary kid and then coming to the U.S. and saying, well, what about justice here? That's really, really fascinating. What about you, Lucas? What is, what is your story? Uh, well, first, you know, thank you so much for having me on this uh, panel. I, I was telling uh, Reverend Sung, and I feel a bit like a neophyte because where she's had such a long career of organizing, I've, I've literally been doing this in a year, but uh, I, I grew up very, very comfortable, you know, in an Asian majority city, Vancouver, uh, Canadian, uh, and, you know, while Canada has a slightly different relationship between politics and religion, uh, you know, it's safe to say that my, my upbringing was pretty apolitical. I was, I was aware of homelessness mainly through you know, a very limited frame of, of soup kitchen uh, visits. Uh, I attended college uh, at the start of the Iraq War. Uh, the Reverend mentioned 9-11, uh, and so I, I attended the same year that Bush, you know, made his speech saying there's wonder-working power in the faith of the American people, replacing the blood of the Lamb with the American people. Uh, but I don't remember any Christian minister calling this out at the time, so it, that, that was sort of like the state. So for me, um, it really wasn't until Hurricane Katrina uh, that I began thinking about broader questions. I was able to visit New Orleans in May 2006, so this is almost a year after Katrina, and I remember visiting the Lower Ninth Ward and seeing it completely leveled, um, you know, and uh, I was particularly struck. I remember seeing a, a, a kitchen island surrounded by absolutely nothing, you know, seeing uh, steps leading up to a door that didn't exist and and uh, and then, you know, 10 minutes later being in the rest of New Orleans where, you know, Jackson Square is still thriving, Bourbon Street is still thriving, and seeing uh, systemic racism spatialized like that, um, you know, and knowing that, that the best I could do on that trip was to, to clear out drywall, that's what we're there, we're there to do, and refrigerators full of rotting food. Um, so that, be, you know, that, that, that's lodged in my brain at that point. And then I got to, to grad school. Uh, I was very fortunate enough to... To, uh, to go to a great program in New York, uh, and I was there uh, during Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and uh, I remember sitting in, in Zuccotti Park and uh, having a, a discussion about socialism, you know, maybe for the first time outside the walls of a classroom uh, with, with someone who, who was there, you know, uh, uh, personally invested, not, not as an abstraction, but personally invested in this Movement. And I know that you know the subsequent history of, of Occupy was complicated, but but it really uh, inspired me to think about you know what what does faith look like you know in terms of faith uh, accompanying deeds. You know this person was not necessarily a Christian, but they had faith in what they were doing. And then um, you know I also was studying the late Victorian period. Um, that's still my specialty, and, and thinking about uh, how the British of that era defended imperialism. And starting to draw connections to today in the way that, that imperialism and, uh, you know, uh, as uh, the Reverend mentioned, this, this sort of missionary colonialism still thrives uh, and enjoys pride of place. Um, so all that was, was brewing already uh, this year. Uh, and also, you know, um, in my freshman comp class, I teach English at CUNY. Uh, I teach uh, Birmingham Jail uh, every year. Uh, so, you know, th those words, especially the climax of his letter, uh, where he calls it the church, um, you know, has, has sort of run a groove in my head. And then this year happened. Uh, I lived in a neighborhood where uh, people put up uh, anti-Chinese posters, uh, quoting Einstein, uh, expressing his dismay at the possibility of Chinese people supplanting uh, other races. Um, and then a month after the 2020 election, uh, I saw Senator Marsha Blackburn's tweet uh, saying that China's history is 5,000 years of cheating and stealing. Uh, and I, I began to connect the dots 
And it was a real uh, transformative, mo transformative moment for me when I realized, you know, this is not despite her faith. That would be bad enough, but it's actually because of her faith, the particular yeah. construal of the gospel of Christ uh, that she considers orthodoxy uh, that, that is fueling this, this animus. So that's how I started this open letter, um, which uh, you know has now amassed uh, 600 plus signatories and calls for accountability from both politicians and uh, their neighbors. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I got to where I am now. One thing that I find interesting in, in both your responses and how you narrated your story is that you were both thinking about responding to big momentous events that happened during your lifetime. So. 9-11, I know that was very impactful in my own life. Uh, this beginning of the Iraq War, Katrina, uh, Occupy Wall Street. Um, and so I, I think one thing that I'm noticing is that you are both attentive to rising to the challenges that the world sets out for you almost. It, that's what it sounds like and very sort of attuned to how the times change and therefore you need to uh, rise to the challenges presented to you. I guess um, I'm curious about thinking about the religious dynamics a little bit more, the faith dynamics that are part of your story. Um, Sangyan, you are a minister's kid and you talked already about how thinking about living into your faith looks differently in an American context versus in the international context in which you grew up. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how uh, faith has Sort of change, shape your work as an activist um, today, um, maybe how it has changed over the scope of your life, doing lots of different work to address injustice in the world. Maybe Lucas, um, after that, I'll give you a chance to reflect on the same question. Yeah, you know, um, so growing up as a missionary kid, um, in India especially, like I had very varying experience about what it means to share the gospel or convert people, right? Like, I mean, there was like, you know, I mean, my, my parents became missionaries, they were church planters, right? So um, they're out there and that's their work and, you know, their vision yet, like, it was very contrasting that like, you know, my parents spent the first three years learning Hindi, right? My mom actually speaks better Hindi than English and actually my, both my parents, right? Like, because they were very committed to like doing it in a way that was more like me, like entering the community versus like, I mean, not to trash white folks, but like they would come in and like teach people English, right? Like, and and so from, it's like partly from that that I've observed like, oh, there's, there is a respectful and dignifying way to do things. Even if, you know, like at this point in my, my faith journey, like I, I actually don't believe in, you know, um, that kind of evangelism, but, and I can tell you a little bit why, but, and at the same time, um, much of my formation happened because of my, uh, when I met Mother Teresa and I, I volunteered at uh, the Sisters of Charity uh, growing up and as part of my school program, like we would go to go to Kolkata and volunteer. And I just remember thinking like, she's a Christian, but she doesn't really talk about it. Like she's not interested in talking to people about her faith. And so that was part of my faith formation in terms of like, there are people who are very insistent talking about Jesus. And then there are people like Mother Teresa who show people what Jesus is. And I think for me, that was very foundational. And so really when I came to the US and seeing the lack of the Mother Teresa style of Christianity, especially in the evangelical community and, you know, at Wheaton, um, 
I was very alarmed by it, right? Like I felt like there needed to be some balance, right? Like you cannot just talk a talk of, you know, of, of faith. And and in my senior year of college, I, I majored in political science and I had to do an internship. And I, you know, I back then we didn't even have Google. Like I Yahooed, you know, Asian American human rights, civil rights, something like I wanted to work with the Asian American community. And I found this organization, now they're called Asian Americans Advancing Justice, uh, Chicago. And and I and I um you know said, you know, I have I can I can intern for three days a week. Like, can you, you know, do you, could you use someone? And um, my supervisor, the the director there, she was the only staff member, and she had no idea where what Wheaton College was or any of that. And then she accepted me. And then on my first day, she said to me, "Oh, so I didn't realize Wheaton College is a Christian school. Just so you know, I'm not interested in Jesus or the Bible. Like, if that's what you want to do, like, I don't want to, I don't want to hear it, right? Like, essentially. And, and so I was like, you know, what are you going to say, right? <laughs> and, and literally through my course of my time there, I would show up at, at community meetings and other things and tell people that I was a Wheaton College intern. And people would literally say, oh, what are you doing here? Like, they were surprised to see someone from Wheaton College in spaces where they were doing community organizing, racial justice work and immigrant rights work. Like that was my my single most like thing that I remember about my internship that year. Um, and then at some point in my conversation, you know, Tuad, who was my my uh, boss, she 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 was a refugee from Vietnam and um, had been hosted by a Lutheran church in. Wisconsin actually had a really bad experience, right? Like they wouldn't give them food if they didn't come to church, those type of things, right? And so finally she goes, well, you're not like the Christians that I knew growing up. Like, why why are you a Christian, essentially? She's like, you don't act like those people, so why are you a Christian? And I literally said, well, I do this work because I'm a Christian. Like, I can't imagine doing you know, living my life and my faith in any other way. And she was so curious. And so I started telling her like, you know, about Jesus and the Beatitudes. She's like, those things are in the Bible, right? Like, and literally I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, like this is the most effective evangelism I've ever had, like versus all of the street evangelism, everything else we've tried, right? And really had this moment of awakening where I was like, this is how it's supposed to be done. Like you're supposed to live your life in a way that people become curious about why you live your life the way you live, right? And in fact, she walked away wanting to read the New Testament because she was just like, I can't, I don't believe that these things are in the Bible, right? Like she literally said those words to me, I'm like, look here. And I would open the Bible, show her passages in Luke, right? Like, you know, and she, she was just like, how come no one, no one, no one talked to me about these things when I went to church, right? And really it was that experience and that internship that solidified my commitment to being a Christian in the social justice world versus being a social justice warrior in the church. Because to me, that's where evangelism is. Like we are to be the light and the salt in the world. And for me, there's nothing more clearer than being able to point to people and say, when they ask you, why do you do what you do to be able to say, because of Jesus, right? Literally, right? And for them to be like, but that's not the Jesus that most people talk about, right? Um, and so, yeah, that that's really been my experience. So much to discuss, but I will let Lucas take it here. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I think the Reverend has touched on um, 
kind of a similar themes to me, even though I, I you know, I, you know, had a different experience growing up in an Asian majority city, uh, not, you know, with that uh, international uh, context, but, uh, you know, I, I would say that I think I, I arrived at a political consciousness more, uh, unfortunately, uh, in spite of uh, uh, my church background, more so than, than because of it. I think there was very much, um, you know, when, when politics surfaced at my church, it was a, it is an, an immigrant church. It was more around issues of, of allocating resources for different groups that were under the umbrella of this church. You know, you had Tagalog speaking uh, people, Fujian speaking people, Mandarin speaking people, uh, uh, as well as me who didn't speak any of these languages. Um, and so, you know, politics was more uh, on the level of, of, of that as well as, you know, should we bring drums into the sanctuary or not? And um, it, it really hovered at the margins. Part of the, the, the uh, uh, context too is that, you know, Vancouver being uh, a place where you can live amongst other people who look like you and come from the same culture, there, there's just, it was really a culture shock to come to America for me and see uh, what, what racism looks like uh, in America. Uh, not to say there's not racism in, in, in Canada, but it's, it's much more veiled. Um, so, you know, what, what my church did give me was, was space to be a human being, um, you know, encouraged me uh, in my, in my uh, uh, creative expression, music. I think, you know, that there's a lot of uh, people for whom the church has, has provided that. And so later, uh, when I started thinking about, you know, the glory of God is, you know, I guess the quote from Irenaeus, either man fully alive or a living man. And, and the idea of, of God's glory being bound up with the expression of our full humanity. Uh, I do think that that, you know, that played a role in, in thinking about that. Um, but it was not direct. Um, so, you know, I think coming into the late 2000s, beginning to read about Shane Claiborne's work, re realizing that there was this burgeoning uh, group of, of Christians who are committed to, uh, to, to social justice uh, was, was more key uh, for me, you know, and, and uh, you know, I would say that being a Christian uh, as well as a student of, you know, Victorian Britain, it makes me very aware of the long history of the way that, that Christianity uh, has been wedded to imperialism and, uh, and to racism. And, um, you know, I, I, I believe that anyone who is, who is hesitant about um, calling the situation for what it is um, might not appreciate how dire, uh, you know, the, the situation is. You know, there's a long history here. When we see terms like China virus, when we see uh, Tom Cotton tweeting, God bless our brave doctors and soldiers, combined with using the term China virus, there was a long history of coupling religiosity uh, with fear of the yellow peril. And that goes back to you know the, the, the late 19th century. So the weight of that history means uh, that you know the reputation of Christ, I mean, there's a reason that there's been an absolute exodus of, of, of people from the church uh, over the past you know, five or six uh, decades really. And I think we have to connect those dots. And so, you know, I, I was brought to this work, both as a basic humanitarian sense of urgency, but also as a Christian who was aware that, you know, people are using my faith to target my, my ethnicity. So I would say that's how my, my faith um, influenced. A couple of themes that 
themes that I have seen in both of your responses is the uses and abuses of Christianity and what damage can be done uh, when people misuse the church. Uh, and also, since both of you, you know, come to the United States having you know, not necessarily grown up fully here, um, Canada and India, you're, I think, both pointing to ways in which life as an Asian American Christian is weirder. But it, I think that people who are born and raised in the U.S., like myself, often appreciate. You know, like the, I think sometimes it takes someone to just remind us, just coming from the outside, actually, the way you do things here is pretty odd. The way you understand race, the way you understand religion, and there's a lot of. American exceptionalism that I think clouds our thinking about all of these issues. So this is very, very instructive for me personally, and I hope for our audience. Um, let's talk about the present moment. There are so many crises, crises upon crises right now. What would you say are the most pressing issues facing Asian Americans today? And what would you encourage people to focus their energy on in terms of justice today? I was like, well, maybe we'll go the other way. <laughs> um, I mean, what 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 is not right? I mean, I think um, one is like I have to tell myself every morning when I wake up, like, take a breather. Like, it is a lot, and we don't have to carry it all. Right. Like, I think that's a daily reminder for myself that, like, it is a lot and I don't have to carry it all. And and, you know, in this moment, it is so important for us to understand, as you know, Lucas alluded to the 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 arc of history of what Asian Americans have experienced. It makes me so angry when people start talking like we were experiencing discrimination for the first time because of the virus. I'm like. And, and, and it's, and you know what, that's fair. Most of us didn't learn US uh, Asian American history, right? And so, you know, the last few, in the last month, like I've literally taken this like, you know, bullhorn that I've been given to educate people to say, actually, I'm not surprised at what happened. I'm not surprised that Asian Americans are being scapegoated. This has happened to us before. Remember Vincent Chen, remember Japanese American internment, remember the Chinese exclusion, like, and they're like, no, actually, I don't know those things. Like, literally do not understand our history, right? And, you know, in the case of the Atlanta shooting, it was really the intersection of race and gender, right? And Melissa, you and I have been doing a bit of a media, you know, media circuit here, to really centering that message that NAPOF brings, that it wasn't just because these, they were Asian Americans who happened to be women, but they were targeted because they were Asian American women. And I have yet to hear... Asian American men comfortably say, yes, our sisters are experiencing hypersexualization and fetishization and using these words to actually name and say, this is also our sin of being part of misogyny, right? So that we need, right? Our brothers need to step up. I mean, the, the, the better ones of you are quiet and not saying anything or texting me privately saying how much you appreciate my voice. The worst ones of you are actually going around saying, how dare you make this about gender? And how dare you compare yourself to comfort women back in the day, right? There is a lot of Asian men who need to go get 
some Asian men. Like, I'm just going to leave it there because it is, it is exhausting. It is traumatizing and it is really, really painful for us in this moment to be re-traumatized because of misogyny within our community. So that is something I can ask specifically that men do. I think the other thing that we need to remember is that the racial justice reckoning that's happening in this country cannot happen in silos by racial groups. And we need to address anti-blackness in our community. And this is not to say, let's be so woke and call our aunties and uncles out because that's not how you do it. Per Melissa's talk the last, last session, right? You know, we need to find a way to engage and meet people where they are, but our communities need to start talking about anti-blackness in our community. We need to have a conversation about how racism and white supremacy impacts all of us. And because when we have our self-interest, then we can really show up as allies. And it's not out of guilt, like, oh, Asians are closer to whiteness and therefore I feel guilty. So maybe I should go support Black Lives Matter. No, that's not why you should do it. You should do it because when Black Lives Matter, literally all lives will matter. Right, that like your commitment to Black Lives Matter is not out of shame and guilt for your relative privilege, but it is because you truly believe that we will all be free and liberated when Black people are free, right? And so we need to educate ourselves and really understand that our history and racial oppression in this country does not happen in a silo. And so I would say the other pressing thing we need to do is start getting comfortable talking about white supremacy. That is a word that nobody in church likes to use. People are very scared of that word, but we need to start using that word because that is literally the frame we need to use in talking about what is happening to all of us in the API co community and our siblings in the Latinx community and in the indigenous community and the black community, right? And so I know that just sounds like a lot of talking, but I feel like we need to shift minds and hearts we need to use this moment to not just say, how are we gonna be safer? You know, I've been very vocal about saying that law, increasing law enforcement is not the solution to the violence Asian Americans are experiencing. I refuse to believe that my safety is gonna come at the expense of black and brown lives. I refuse to believe that, right? Our country, our leaders have got to do better. And when we, when we buy into the idea of being the wedge race, because it's about me and my safety, then we're playing into the white supremacy's um, formula, right? And so I, I think that's the part we need to really unpack and think about as we are in these really tough times that how are we looking out for all of us in the community, in the various communities of color? And it's not just about me and my family. Yeah. I confess I have to mute myself when you two talk so that everyone doesn't hear me yell amen over and over again. <laughs> um, thank you for that. And thank you specifically for identifying uh, patriarchy within Asian American faith communities. I think this is an under-addressed issue and um, men, you need to get your men. Okay, Lucas. Yeah, well, you know, I could just say amen and, and leave it at that because I think, you know, Reverend just summed up a lot of what I wanted to, to talk about, um, you know, especially you know, when you, when you, when you discussed uh, uh, the internalization of anti-blackness and, and of misogyny uh, amongst Asians, you know, it is not insignificant that amongst the capital writers were, uh, uh, you know, at least one person sporting the Korean flag, uh, uh, Filipinos, uh, South Vietnamese, 
And so, you know, I think everybody knows, well, most people know that there has been an explosion of hatred. So I, I won't belabor that point. I think most people who are here might be here because you know uh, that there is something very real uh, happening. And, you know, whether we, we can debate how steep the increase has been since the beginning of the pandemic, although there, there does seem to be, you know, evidence of a market increase. Uh, but so I, what I want to focus on is, is what to me is urgent is, is that internalization. And, I, and I'll, I'll get at this by way of a story. You know, 10 years ago, I was on the subway and uh, there was a guy who was blaring Fox News on his radio, portable radio, and I asked him to turn it down. Um, he was not white, interestingly. And instead of turning it down, uh, of course, he got up and started ranting uh, about how uh, I was a Chinese spy whom Obama had led into the country. Uh, so this was in, in, in New York. Uh, so fast forward, you know, about 11 years, I'm, I'm trying to circulate this letter and I sent it to a church, uh, a, a Chinese American church. And I get an email back from one of them, uh, one of the, the representatives of the church, uh, asking me who, <laughs> I think the, the words were like, who do you really work for? Um, and I was surprised <laughs> by that question. And then, and then someone else from the church wrote an apologetic email saying, you know, um, there are people in our church who, who have bought into conspiracy theories. So I'm connecting the dots here and, and you know, it, it sure sounds like the idea that there are Chinese spies among us, the yellow pale rhetoric, uh, you know, we Chinese ourselves are not immune to that, that, that paranoia. And, and, you know, I understand that being myself of, of Cantonese descent. Um, but when you look at Mike Pompeo, Gosar, Josh Hawley, uh, uh, Ted Cruz, Crenshaw, Kevin McCarthy, that's just a sliver of uh, the Christian nationalist politicians who particularly in March 2020 blamed China, incited racism uh, in that month, which was the first explosion and led to among American family being stabbed in Texas. That was all a deliberate method, right, of, of distracting from, from the Trump administration's failures. And to the extent that we give them a pass or we remain silent or uh, uh, we follow their lead, uh, even in, in in blaming other people of color, we we are, we are essentially doing their their dirty work for them, um, you know. And you know, I, I think this is, this is a real reckoning moment, and it is uncomfortable. And and, and I, I I appreciate and I acknowledge that. But I think when when people, you know, another response I've gotten is that I, I prefer not to to cite or highlight their religion. You know, I, I prefer not to uh, make it about religion. Well, that's, that's not a choice that's available to us because they have already made it about religion. They are doing this in the name of, of Christian nationalism, of a yoking of, of the flag and the cross that we have abided, you know, um, it, as uh, Asian Americans, uh, many of us who came to this country already as Christians, uh, you know, I think Dr. Park did, has done, Jerry Park has done work on this about, you know, how um, predominantly, right, uh, the Heart Seller Act attracted uh, people uh, who are Christian from from their home countries, and with that comes a very strong impetus to to buy into the particular brand of white evangelicalism uh, that ultimately gives birth to um, you know what I call sanctified xenophobia. Uh, so that to me is is what is urgent, and you know I I think the the, the perpetual foreigner and the model minority stereotype are really two sides of the same coin. They, they reinforce each other. And we're, we've been caught ping-ponging between the pressures of both of these things. Uh, and I think what is urgent is for us to, to refuse 
that constant dynamic. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of really heavy things, problems we need to solve. But I want to ask what gives you hope. So, what positive things do you see happening? How do you find resilience? Um, I think you can answer this however you want. Um, what encouragement can you offer fellow Asian American Christians about how to live into their faith meaningfully? In, especially vis-a-vis -vis issues of injustice. Um, so, so what, what would you say? I'll, I'll begin with you, Lucas. Okay, yeah, well, you know, uh, I have been hardened by the people who have signed on. You know, um, one of the initiatives with, with Against Christian Xenophobia, you can see at our website, againstchristianxenophobia.com, is a series of direct video messages from signatories. Uh, and, and written messages. Uh, and, and there was one particularly moving by Reverend uh, Chris Tay, uh, who talked about his, his own family's history uh, being from, from Indonesia uh, as a, a Chinese family. And, and um, you know, hearing him make those connections between uh, Indonesia's own complicated history of anti-Chinese uh, uh, animus uh, and what's happening in, in America, you know, and, and hear him draw on his own experiences in ministry you know, reminded me, you know, that as much as, as disillusioned as, as I've been, you know, with, with the church, uh, that that there is still remnant. There is There are still uh, people who, who are trying to live out uh, the gospel. Uh, you know, and on that note, you know, I, I think my hope does ultimately, you know, tattered though my faith has been, uh, through the era of, of ascendant Christian nationalism, I go back to uh, uh, the meaning of evangelical, uh, Evangelion, uh, you know, the Reverend mm -hmm. talked about that, and and the meaning of when in Luke, uh, when the angels announce uh, a peace on earth, that the earth, the word for earth, is the entire physical realm, and that that contrasts with uh, in Luke two one, where Augustus sends it a, a, a census of the world. The word is oikumene, the Roman world. So the gospel of peace is a gospel that is beyond the borders of my empire or your empire. It is about the entire physical realm. And it, it really uh, speaks a word to me, particularly as a, as a Chinese American who's aware of just this constant uh, uh, quest for supremacy between China and, and America, uh, that, that the good news is that, that empires all have an expiration date. And, and that is the good news. And to me, that is what it means to preach the gospel, to be uh, 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 an announcer of, of the Evangelion uh, is not just this private moral scorecard uh, about me, myself, and, and, and Jesus, right? It is, it is profoundly uh, confrontational. Uh, and there's joy in that, and there's liberation in that. So it's not just all about anger, and I wish that's what people would understand. So, you know, I invite people to join us. The water's warm, uh, mostly because of climate change, but it is, uh, 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 it is the, the opportunity is very welcome. Uh, and I hope that, that you'll consider joining us. Thank you. What about you, Sam? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's been a really intense uh, year, but um, especially this last month following the Atlanta shooting, right? And then many of you who are Asian American women on this call, like, you know why, right? Like, I don't have to explain, but for the men, just in case you missed the memo, um, as B.D. Wong said, I thought I was a feminist and I had no idea. I mean, at, you know, like our stories are 
coming to light in a way that has never had the opportunity, right? Um, at NAPOF, our tagline is be heard, be seen, and be fierce. And we've been trying to be heard and seen for the last 25 years. And finally, people are paying attention, be it at the, you know, the aftermath of a really tragic, tragic massacre. But what I am hopeful for is that we will step into our power, into this moment, especially those of us who have been gaslit by the church, especially the Asian American church, about our leadership, about our gifts and our power, that we can step into that space knowing that the world now knows the nonsense we've had to put up with, right? That the thing that struck me the most about the, the, the week following the Atlanta shooting, um, I was getting a lot of reporter calls, you know, because of the name of our organization, you know, most reporters are like, oh, let's see who can talk about this. Oh, Asian Pacific American women, let's talk to them, right? And so I literally talked to like 70 some reporters that week. And my goal was to make sure that the framing around the shooting stayed intersectional, that it, the message wasn't that, oh, these women got murdered because of the pandemic and they just happened to be women, but they got murdered because they were Asian, right? I was starting to hear that and it made me very nervous. And so I got out there and really told the story of how Asian American women have been hypersexualized, have been experiencing racialized misogyny in this country since the beginning of time, right? That means 1875, before the Chinese Exclusion Act, Asian American women were excluded before all of us were excluded, right? And to be able to tell this story, to step, and, and the thing that really struck me was so many people were like, I had no idea that this is your experience. Like they had no idea that I get sexually harassed because I am Korean. They had no idea. People literally had no idea, right? And so, especially for you Asian American men in this community, some of you may have never known that either. As B.D. Wong admitted, he also didn't know, right? You need to speak up and stop participating in misogynistic behavior and thinking in our communities. I mean, the number of times I have sat around the table as a reverend with other Korean male pastors or Asian male pastors and the sexist jokes and comments they think it's appropriate to say has, like, I, I can't even, I can't even name, right? So let's really take this moment to take some stock of our own culture and communities and what we brought. And what I wanna say to the women in this room is that step into your power. Don't let people shame you for what is rightfully ours to say. People have been trying to shame me, telling me that we shouldn't talk about sex. We shouldn't talk about sex work. We shouldn't talk about the fact that we're hypersexualized. Why not? Why can't I use those words as a Christian, right? To shame us into the darkness because that's what we're told we're supposed to do, right? So for me, it's really, as women, let's let's embrace the moment and step out into that, right? And, I, and I'm so heartened by the community that, that has surrounded me. I've literally gotten emails from random people from Oklahoma who said, I was listening to NPR and I heard you on the radio talking about your experience. And I had to stop because like, I felt like somebody was finally seeing me. People were hearing my story. And, you know, there was just so much of the outpouring of like, I read your piece in New York times and I, I feel validated. I, and so many of us are coming out of the woodworks. There's so many other amazing people who've written, 
you know, and and Melissa, YouTube getting on TV and speaking on these things. And I think, you know, we need to like, I am just so glad that we're finding our community and finding our voice. And with that, I want to encourage us to also say, like, take your time like this. Nobody you don't owe anybody your labor. Right. I'm going to quote um, an amazing, amazing Korean feminist theologian piece. Um, um, who said, we are not your comfort women, right? Even in this moment, I know there are, especially those of us who work in white churches or multiracial churches, we're like, Asian women, can you come and educate us? Can you do this? That is not your job. You do not need to do any of that, right? If you feel called and if you want to, but know that that is not your burden to carry, right? Um, and that in this moment, we should really feel empowered to be who we are and not be ashamed to be, um, you know, to bring to light the things that have happened to us, right? I've had Korean women say, oh, I'm so embarrassed that this is what people used to think about us. I'm like, just because you didn't know, it doesn't mean it wasn't happening. Like, Americans have been thinking, you know, looking at Asian women in this way since the 1800s. Like, this is nothing new, you know? We should not be filled, we should not be made to feel shame for things other people do to us, for the things that misogyny and white supremacy do to us, right? We should not feel shame about that. And, and that's what I wanna call my sisters here into my siblings who identify as women that like, it is really about unpacking so much of that. And I hope you find healing in some of that and um, you know, validation that you really are, um, we, have, we have lived through a lot just as Asian American women, right? And that, um, I hope that as our stories unfold and as people come to realization that, um, you know, you are finding healing um, and restoration in that. Thank you so much. It's really powerful. And I will also say, I think many of the things you described, the work of sharing the stories of racialized misogyny, that is a labor that Asian American women have done a lot in the past month. And it is important and it changes the conversation it's also traumatic and so i want to echo one other thing that you said someone which is it's a lot and it's okay to take your time um and to take good care of yourself i think that is such an important message but I just want to honor the fact that it is emotionally taxing um just hearing you describe the labor of telling those traumatic stories makes me feel overwhelmed and exhausted so i yes a lot um Thank you. I, I want to make sure we have a chance to address some of the questions from our audience. And there is a question that kind of relates to some of these themes about hope and hopelessness and paralysis. So this is a question from Jonathan. Um, he writes, I noticed that there's sometimes a paralysis in church lay people to have conversations about justice because of a hopelessness about finding consensus in defining biblical justice practically. So does this consensus need to happen first? And if you prefer to read it, it's the top uploaded question in the team. That's helpful. So, no, the answer is no, because uh, no, like this is, these are urgent issues. And honestly, I feel like like consensus for what, right? Like, what is the purpose of that? Like, and and I and I'll be honest, I feel like that is often used as an excuse to not step out and 
in faith and as a prophet, like in, you know, really being a prophetic voice because we don't want to make people mad. And that, you know, I get that. That's like part of our culture, right? Like part of, but I will say that as somebody who has been a victim of much of this gaslighting in the name of peacekeeping and uh, consensus, that that is very damaging to people who are actually victims in that system, right? It is okay for you to take your time to get consensus if you're not the one that's feeling the the burden of it and the brunt of it, right? But I think what's difficult is when 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 those of us who are really impacted by these um, injustices that are happening are constantly told that we need to wait. Uh, that is why people are leaving the church. I mean, the number like so the number one thing that happens to me when people actually find out that I'm a reverend, the number of people that share their stories with me about why they left the church is really heartbreaking. They literally are like the same response. I still to this day, you know, 20 years later, I still get the same response. You're a Christian, you're a reverend. Why are you doing this work? Right? Like, I can't believe that there's a Christian pastor doing this work, right? After they get over the shock of an Asian woman being a pastor, there's not that many of us apparently. Um, and they, then they tell me the stories of why they left the church, right? And I think that is so heartbreaking to me that we are, we have become the reason why people turn, turn away from God. And, and to me, that is why consensus can't be reached and we can't wait for consensus because we are literally losing souls because of our inability to be brave and courageous and step up and say, we need to address these things. And I think for me, what I would say, and I, you know, very much to Melissa's point in her previous presentation, it was very practical, Melissa, it was very helpful, but my experience is talk from your personal experience, right? Or experiences of people you know. Um, people are less likely to argue with you and tell you that you're wrong if you're talking about your life versus like opinions. And so that's an approach. But I have given up on bringing, frankly, bringing all uh, Christian, all Asian American Christians uh, along with me. I'll be honest. Yeah. I mean, again, I can just sign off on everything that, that, that the Reverend said and, and simply add, I think. Christians also have to stop thinking about this narrowly in terms of finding consensus within the church and start reaching beyond these, frankly, many times artificial and arbitrary boundaries of who is a Christian, who is not, who is inside, who is not outside. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke about religion was Christianity toward the end of his life, the idea of being in the world and in a very provocative turn of phrase, living as if God does not exist. And that's, that didn't mean he became an atheist, but it meant that he was radical about partnering with people outside the, the church because, you know, as, as the Reverend pointed out, you know, when you, when you see how deeply entrenched misogyny and racism, internalized anti-blackness, uh, uh, classism as well, how deeply entrenched they are. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, the world around us is literally falling apart because we are failing in our duty to be salt and light. At a certain point, you have to make calls, and that doesn't mean that you can't continue those conversations, but those conversations, consensus cannot be a precondition uh, for taking action. And sometimes taking action will invite blowback from, from people within the church because they won't understand. Uh, and I think that that is simply part of, part of the job, part of the work. Thank you, Rita. I see Darren just joined us. Darren, do you have... Um 
Are we out of time? Do we still have time for more questions? We do have guidance for any questions in the chat. Yeah, we have time for maybe one more question, um, and then we can uh, maybe wrap it up uh, uh, in a minute or two. Okay. okay. Um, so I'm going to take this question from, from Daniel. Uh, Daniel asks, how do we engage in the general question or conversation, excuse me, of white supremacy and privilege with friends whose first response is, have I ever been racist to you? I'm trying to dramatize that correctly. Yeah, <laughs> have I ever been racist to you? I find it so difficult to begin this conversation without instantly raising defensiveness. So, Sungan, you brought up the need for us to talk about white supremacy. So I'll pitch this to you first. How do we talk about white supremacy in a way that is productive? Yeah, you know, so I am not so interested in getting the people that are really defensive and not, like, I think you need to understand, like, people have different, people aren't going to change their mind until they're ready and open, right? And so you really need to, like, you cast your, your, your view and you're going to get all sorts of responses and you have to be selective about who you're going to respond to and how, you know? And, and, and frankly, I don't think it's, you, it's, you, you don't, not everything is a nail because you have a hammer. Like you have to use different tools. why people need to get their people. Sorry, I don't know if my internet is cutting out, but you know, and, and so I am about having the conversations about framing our experiences in, in the analysis of white supremacy for our community. I'm not so interested in telling white people about white supremacy, to be honest with you. Like we need to have whites, white, white, white people get their people. As I'm telling men here, right? I'm not gonna engage those misogynistic men who are sending me like hateful emails and messages about how I should be ashamed of what I'm talking about. I don't engage that, right? I'm asking you men to go get them, right? Because there's a level of like not being able to talk to each other when you're that defensive and it's that personal, right? And so I often tell white folks, I'm like, the best thing you could do is go home to Iowa for Thanksgiving and talk to your crazy racist uncle. We don't need you here in my neighborhood. Like, we got us. You go get your people, right? Really. Because truly, those Iowans aren't going to listen to me. They're going to listen to their nephew or their niece more than they're going to listen to me. And so I think it's really important to be discerning about who you engage and how. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'll just say really quickly again, like, I, I totally affirm all of that. And that there has to be this prioritizing who we talk to. Just you know, two really quick things. I think one question uh, that I that this question itself raises is, what do we mean by racist? You know, do do we simply mean using a racial slur? Do we mean uh, quoting Full Metal Jacket, or do we mean uh, that part of your brain that when you hear that Dante Wright was murdered, or Micaiah Wright was, or uh, sorry, uh, Micaiah was murdered, uh, that that part of your brain that thinks, well, what what did they really do? you know, which is the product of decades of, of propaganda, for example. Or uh, when we think about racism in terms of, again, who gets housing and who does not. You know, uh, racism is not just a personal animus. It is, it is what we choose to materially sustain and support and what we choose to not materially sustain and support. But then the other point is, and this goes to uh, Reverend Sunyan's point is, 
you know, I think it's important to ask ourselves and even question, why do we feel the need to have this conversation with this person? And it might be because of a genuine desire to see them grow and develop as a human being. But, you know, I think this is where the, the, this, the language of soul saving uh, uh, actually is, is important. You know, the word for soul just means suke, psyche. My own soul needs saving too. And if I'm constantly mired in trying to describe my own humanity to people and describe what racism is, it's not good for my soul, you know. Uh, and, you know, uh, honestly, I, I've had some friendships badly frayed because of this, but I had to accept that, you know, because it wasn't good for my soul uh, to, to continue to be in that, in that relationship. So uh, I think just those two things I would encourage this person uh, to think about in their, their interactions. Wow, what an amazing conversation. Um, thanks so much, folks. You can smash that reaction like button. I know I got chills. <laughs> this was just straight fire. Um, thank you so much, uh, panelists, for showing up. Uh, we do, in just one minute, have another session to run to. Um, but we hope to continue this really important conversation uh, in, in the coming days. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to end the session, and people can hop over to the next one. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Take care.